0: On this week's VFM episode we're talking to Mark Austin, Chair of Northern Trust Pension Schemes to find out what value for money means to him.
1: to the 13th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. 13? Unlucky for some, certainly (laughs) unlucky for Henry. I'm delighted, as always, to be joined by my co-host, the one and only, the biodiversity curious, Nico (laughs) Aspinall. Thank you, Darren. Uh, A pleasure,
0: as always. And I am, as ever, delighted to be sat next to the man who can slip VFM Pensions into any question from any conference, uh, Darren Phil. And that was at the DCF event, wasn't it, where it you was were presenting your um, TCFD? I gainly, I didn't mention it in my presentation, but then uh, as soon as you asked
1: a question, including it, I did ask also a question to say we've had a podcast. And it did get some chuckles, didn't it? Yeah, it, it, it did. Is. get some chuckles. Um, and today, we're totally delighted to be speaking to Mark Austin. Welcome, Mark. Good morning, both. Morning. Uh, so,
0: Mark, you are the Pensions and Insurance Exec for EMEA at Northern Trust. Uh, director of the Northern Trust Irish Manco um, and uh, Chair of the Northern Trust Pension Scheme which is hybrid so includes uh, a DC section, uh, Chair, Deputy Chair of the DCIF, so you'll be incoming and chair, is it this year that you're... No, next year, just next to become uh, Vice Chair. Yeah, um, and of course I know you uh, most through the relationship that we had at the People's Pension uh, where you managed, where Northern Trust managed, the, the, the custody accounts for, for TPP. So we'll come on to that in, in a moment, but you are most, most welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, before we get into the news, which is our kind of uh, routine order of things, um, I wanted to pose a question to our listeners, because we've had a bit of a bit of feedback, and it's mixed feedback. Um So we've been going on a bit longer, have not we, Darren?
1: Um, we like to I wonder what the reason for that is uh, I wonder what the reason for that is (laughs) his frantic hand gestures to try and shut me out just
0: just don't work do they
1: well it's easier when we're in the room when we record them remotely it's more difficult (laughs) Um, so we'd love to
0: hear from you Uh, please email us on vfmpensions at gmail.com what do you think the perfect length for our podcast should be Um, so not the perfect length of any podcast our podcast and to give you a sense, we've had people with a half hour train journey who are a bit upset because you can't listen to it in just one direction. Uh, people with an hour and 15 minutes train journey who are a bit upset because it runs out before they get into Waterloo. So we just don't know what the answer is. We've probably <coughs> been doing about 50 minutes, haven't we?
1: Yeah, about 50 minutes, although they, they have been gradually getting
0: longer. <laughs> yeah. So tell us what we should be cutting that to, please, uh, by emailing us on vfmpensions at gmail.com. And that's our routine email address. You can send us any little bit of tidbits, uh, feedback, and even volunteer to be
1: on the show. Yeah, it's always great to um, speak to new guests. Um, So as always, we start these podcasts with the news. And um, Mark, as you're our guest, you get the plogative. What
2: have you got for us? Uh, Well, I was quite interested in um, the news from TPR about just how low the number of schemes are Mm. that have actually completed their value for money assessment. I think it was something like sub-20% either mm. completed it, and a vast number of them weren't even aware that they needed to complete it.
1: So yeah. this was the value for money assessment that was introduced for schemes below 100 million? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was quite an interesting headline, wasn't it, Nick? <laughs> yeah, so this is money marketing.
0: Uh, the headline that they gave it was TPR launches value for money initiative for DC schemes. Um, and yeah, I mean talk about a buried lead I think is what they talk about in journalism isn't it? Yeah. Um, so 17% have actually completed it uh, and 64%, presumably when they were tapped
1: on the shoulder by the pensions regulator, said what are you talking about? <laughs> so the headline it could probably <laughs> should have been widespread non-compliance with new value for money requirements. Yeah. Um, yeah. We need to get to these schemes and tell them what they need to do. Yeah.
2: This is yet another thing playing into the hands of TPR's drive to consolidate, drastically consolidate the DC market. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But the initiative
0: is meant to. So you're comparing yourself, aren't you, as a sub 100 million pound scheme to master trusts, essentially master trusts that you might consolidate with. Um, But if there's having seen a little bit on the other side, uh, because they they were fielding a lot of questions. Um, so if that represents 17% of the market, <laughs> you know, there is a lot more data requests coming out to master trusts to do you know, tiny accrual changes in terms of the cost and rework out from all kinds of uh, reporting
1: dates uh, what performance might be. So watch out, guys. <laughs> but it does show the challenge with our regulatory system, doesn't it? Mm. This long tail of really small schemes that if you've got, what was it, 83% of them that haven't done it? Um, which is the other way of looking at it of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, then you know, if the message isn't getting through to them, and they're not doing it, then yeah. you know, how, can we, you know, how can we improve? How can we drive that consolidation? Because obviously the communication strategy the TPR have got yeah. isn't actually landing with these smaller schemes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's without taking into account, with these very small schemes, who are they con- going to consolidate into? Yeah. Mm. Um, because that's going to be a sub-cost optimal effort for the master trusts to bring those small schemes on. Yeah. Most of those master trusts are commercial or quasi-commercial in some degree. So you're left with a very unpalatable process yeah. um, that's going to be cost cost money for those master trusts. Yeah. So I think we've got a difficult situation coming. Mm. Yeah, and it,
1: it, it gets to the point um, with this value for money frameworks and increased disclosure and the regulatory initiatives that we have that, you know, surely, you get to a point where it's more efficient just to say, if you're below a certain amount and you meet these criteria, you have to consolidate into the master trust. Yeah. Um, and if you and if there's no natural commercial home, well, we've got this thing called the National Employment Savings Trust. Yeah. Uh, that has a, a whacking great big government subsidy um, to, to take on non-economic business. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could get into a comply or explain type regime. Couldn't yeah. you? So run them, essentially asking the master trusts to be. Uh, sorry, asking the single employer trust to be, you know, Turkey's voting for Christmas. Um, You could say Christmas is coming, you know, (laughs) tell us what alternative meats you've got served, right? That's a very bad metaphor, (laughs) isn't it? But, uh, (laughs) you know, it could be, look, everybody, we're we're serving notice. you're all going to close in two years' time. We will presumably spend lots of money on consultants as a society, as a state, to do that consolidation. But if you can justify to us against certain criteria why you're not in that wave, you know... Have at it, right? Get
1: it licence off right I've just got jingle bells running through my head now, and, <laughs> and, and, and Nico honestly, a um, pretending to be Santa. But, you know, it's... it's oh, oh, oh!
2: <laughs> I do have to slightly say, I feel like I'm intruding on an episode of The Last Smith & Jones. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> the feel we want. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We haven't modeled it on that. <laughs> um,
1: so, um, what, can I go next, Nico? Of course. Yeah. So, we're recording this on the Thursday morning. And the BBC are trailing. And this has been sort of widely trailed. Yes, a lot of um, government um, stories are these days. That the state pension age to six, rise to, to sixty eight, will not be brought forward yet. Mm. So, this is. Um, th- 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 we, we know that the government was um, undertaking a, a review of the state pension age. We know that um, the state pension costs um, a lot of money. Um, and it was due to rise um, to 68 from 2044. And there's been a lot of um, speculation that it will be built forward. So, you know, like we've obviously got had changes in longevity. We've had COVID, you know, the, the, the landscape is, is, is quite different mm-hmm. now. Um, also, we've probably got an election within the next year or two. So um, it's probably no surprise yeah. that um, yeah, um, a large constituent of, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to increase the state pension age towards the end of a parliament when you're looking um, to get re-elected. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, there's, there's politics behind this as well, um, but also there's big implications in terms of, you know, um, cost of living crisis, pension poverty, all of that type of stuff. Because I think there was some other... Um, research that was was also published alongside this. Um, it will cost the government a lot of money but also there's a real risk that um, if you keep bringing forward the state pension age then you're really starting to impact on poverty um, and impacting on um, groups with lower life expectancy so there's some real distributional aspects to this.
2: Mm. That lower life expectancy I think is this is one of the things you highlighted longevity there where it is now starting to fall off. Mm. So I mean you could be uncharitable and say this government's doing its absolute best, it doesn't need to afford forward <laughs> to 68 because it's actually bringing down the mortality point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but it's, I, I think, I personally have a little bit of sympathy with it just until we really know what's going on yeah, yeah, with yeah. that longevity now.
1: Yeah, I think um, any changes to the State Pension age should be based on evidence and they should be based on a long-term framework. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't just be done to fee- fill a medium term <coughs> fiscal black hole um, and you know, just to free up money for, yeah. you know, for elsewhere. Yeah. And I think quite often, and we talked about this before in this podcast, that you know, pensions can be quite a political football at times and we mm. need to work out how we can you know, have that framework for making decisions in the
0: longer term. Yeah, I mean so if we go back to Steve Webb's tenure as Pensions Minister, um, obviously he, he sorted out the state second pension SERPs um, and integrated that into the basic state pension um, at the same time I, I, I recall that he was talking about essentially a, an actuarial longevity test as to future pension rises uh, age rises more. Mm-hmm. So, it well it's, it's a pretty simple test for GAD I think um, the difficulty is that ONS have to do all the data work right yeah. um, so, um, but that that sort of not explicit but possibly as implicit in this this decision um the other thing that i wanted to contrast it with is obviously the french are on the streets at mm-hmm. the moment over pensions right now um, and uh, i was watching channel 4 news last night and uh, they were in i think place concorde in in, in paris uh, guess for me what was the average age of the people that they they had, you know, complaining on the streets about the rise from 62 to 64, I think it is, I'm That that runs way through, Mark.
2: They're around about 61.
0: Darren? I'd say 45. 25.
1: 25,
0: These wow. were wow. kids who were, maybe it was because of the time of night that <laughs> they were out there interviewing, but these were kids who were engaged with their pensions. Wow. And really their argument was we should be getting a pension from 60. Mm. So... You know, that cultural contrast between Britain and, and France, okay, for bad reasons in France, but the engagements amongst young people over this topic is amazing. Yeah. We, you know, maybe we should be, uh, it's a bit like uh, when, you know, Heinz says, oh, we're going to withdraw this thing which is sort of uh, unpopular, unprofitable, and everybody goes, no, I love salad green, or, you know. <laughs> So maybe we should be trying to put this news out that the government might
1: change this and try and get 20-year-olds engaged with pensions that way. Well, that's, um, that's one for the pensions attention campaign uh-huh. that will be running again this year. So, Nico, what have you got for us?
0: Well, um, you know, jumping over feedback from some of our listeners, I want to talk about climate change oh, again. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I was preparing this, uh, the uh, paper from the uh, Climate Change Committee uh, uh, arrived, uh, so they say climate change has arrived, and yet the country is strikingly unprepared. So the CCC, uh, the Committee for Climate Change, uh, the BBC described it as an independent kind of body of experts, and I think that's sort of there's another footnote you need, which is it's a state-designed climate change advisor. Right. So it's not like the independent sage; it's more like sage, yeah. um, and they're commissioned essentially to hold the government to account. Um, they work with the, whichever department is responsible for it now um, on the carbon budgets, develop the carbon budgets as advice, uh, and then the government legislates to meet those requirements. And they're saying, so they're like a critical friend of the government, they're saying the government is not doing enough. Yes. And then this morning at the time of writing, um, the government kind of uh, reissued, uh, and the Labour response seems to be it's all old news, but they reissued their kind of net zero commitments um, and uh, discussions about hydrogen investment, nuclear investment, uh, and um, they've re-announced their uh, insulation programme. rebranded a lot of different things. Um, and I'm certainly not in enough of the detail to uh, compare and contrast the amounts of finance that is going towards these things. Um, but yeah, so climate change in the news. Um, I'm sorry to say for some of our listeners that it may well be in the news uh, for a while to come. Yet, but well, it's not going away, is it? Yeah. it? It certainly seems not to be. And if we listen to Mike, it's probably you know getting worse. Right? It is. Yeah, you
1: know? yeah. We need to act, and we need to act sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, so, Mark,
2: how did you get into pensions? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that most, of your, uh, most of your interviewees give you some sort of by accident, by accident. Yep. Yeah, um, it's very common, very common. Yeah, yeah. So, no, no one
1: plans it, do they, Mickley? Okay.
2: Um, no. <laughs> no, so I, I got into pensions originally, dropped out of university, went to work for Barclays New Issues, went from there to work to Henderson Global Investors, right through the beginning of the equity um, growth, bringing on lots and lots of pension schemes, and so by then I was in pensions, be it all mm-hmm. on the asset management side moved there through a couple of other companies, came to Northern Trust about 17 years ago. Right. Um, again, very much a focus here on, on retirement assets. Mm. Uh, and so now I was in retirement assets. And I was getting quite exercised about pensions generally. I spent a lot of time learning about it. And a role came up on the pension trustee, member-nominated yeah. yeah. role. And I thought, right, I'm going to make a difference now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go on, and I'm going to go on on a mandate around education and engagement. And I got hold of a couple of people I knew in the the market, Um, Stuart Stephen who was then at Diageo, Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of others, and I said, listen, I'm going to stand for this, and um, I'm going in on engagement and um, education. And everyone looked at me and said, you're a fool. You'll (laughs) never change it. And I said, yeah, no, no, I can, I can, I can. So got on on that basis, unanimously elected, I thought, brilliant, great. Formed a uh, education and governance committee, And I think we moved the dial like two percent. Right. I took that (laughs) as being a positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since then, the only thing I've found that moves the dial in terms of um, member engagement is bad news. Right. Yeah. We had our property fund gated once, and the communication went out. That was the most engaged with communication we've ever put out. Yeah. yeah. And it was the one that affected probably the least number of members. Right. Mm So. Bad news sells. It does, doesn't it? You, you yeah.
1: only have to look at the the press uh, yeah. to, to to pick that up. And is that is that stuff that sticks with people, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Can I can
0: I pull us back a little bit? So, um So you were never an asset manager. Nope. You've not run money yourself. Nope. Um, but you've you've uh, distributed. You've been in client relationships and yep. talked about how other people have run money and absolutely told them how better to talk about that. No doubt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things about our industry is just how many kind of mathematically uh, uh, delighted people there are um, and uh, that kind of yin-yang, I think, of the, you know, the, the sales relationship with maybe more people skills yeah. uh, and this very, very deep uh, Excel spreadsheet level, which I think I take after my myself, you yeah. know, um, that's our yin-yang, isn't it? It right? is, it is, yeah. But how did you find that? So you must have been quite an interesting time right so lots going on in
2: markets and uh. it's hugely interesting time um, the 87 crash was just unbelievable mm. um, uh, I walked into work that day and I hadn't listened to the radio when I got up and I walked into work and I remember seeing I through the Elephant Castle and the tree was down on the roundabout the Elephant Castle First thing with my I thought, someone must have hit that hard with the car. Nice. Um, and it was when I got into work, there were 600 people at the company at the time, and I think it was about the 12th person through the door, mm-hmm. and we had a SEAC terminal at the end of the desk. It was an absolute sea of red. Yeah. Um, and that really just, we were on the, you know, it was big, pension funds in equities at that point, that was a real turning point for mm-hmm. pension funds. Um, you know, we'd come off the DBs having pension holidays, mm-hmm. the equity growth was just explosive. It's such a changing point for pensions, yeah. and at the time we didn't really realise it, mm. it was only afterwards that we realised what a difference that made to DB, yeah. and then there's been that whole period afterwards where sponsors have just been tipping money into a black hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So the, the combination of that kind of DB accounting world, um, obviously inflation as a, uh, what's it called, the preservation requirements, um, making sure that people's pensions are indexed with inflation, um, and then obviously yield compression over that time was just made. Yeah, up until September last year, <laughs> and,
1: and, and 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 the good times rolled again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the Kamakwasi budget. Kamakwasi budget. That's yeah. something I learned at the DCIF. It was wasn't it? So I wanted to ask you about the DCIF, Mark. You, mm. You're deputy chair of that at yep. the moment. Um, what,
2: what does that involve?
1: What, what is the DCIF?
2: So the DCIF is the Defined Contribution Investment Forum, it's a group of like-minded, mainly investment managers, we're the only asset servicer on it, who are just looking at topics around investments and DC and around DC in general, drive a lot of research, publish quite a bit of research, We do things like podcasts, lunch and learns, etc. We're just trying to raise um, education and awareness around defined contribution and and the things that are challenging around the investment in that. It's so quite a small organisation, mm-hmm. I think we've got about like, 14 members, maybe 15 this mm-hmm. year. Um, so being Vice Chair, that's sort of like the preparation for, it's like the uh, Mayor of London at the alderman before the Chair, mm-hmm. um, so, so you're Chair currently, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. the Chair currently is Lorna Kennedy from Bailey Gifford and when she rolls off I become Chair and then someone else becomes Vice Chair. As an organisation I have to say it's absolutely brilliant, it really punches above its weight yeah. um, and everyone who has comes into contact with it and, and what it does is so surprised. Yeah. So it started off as a group
1: of um, active managers didn't it I think um, back in the day which was just you know how can we open up the active uh, versus passive discussion within DC Investments yeah. Yeah. but I think it has changed a lot since those early days and you know, there was a report we were at the conference last week and you were presenting your TCFD research and there was um, a wider discussion about the implications of the Kami Kwasi budget on on DC pensions. So for, for, to my mind, the, the organisation has morphed into an organisation that is looking much more in the round about DC investment issues, not just the... The, the, the makeup of them, yeah. but also some of the communication stuff, some of the governance challenges, climate challenges. Yeah. So it's, yeah, um, and always high quality events. Well yeah. done, Louise Farrant. Well done, Louise, um,
0: uh, for finding me. No. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, Northern Trust as a member of that community, as an asset service, so that must be a really interesting. Uh, yeah, kind of forum for you guys to go and participate in. It is
2: interesting in what comes back to us, but it's also mm. interesting in what we can put up. So mm. I'll give you an example of that. The debate around LATFs. Um, uh, you know, um, it, everyone's you know talking about, you know, the practicalities of putting putting them in place and you know, aren't they gonna be good, great to get in but the practicalities of putting them in place that we come from, which is the nuts and bolts, yeah, which is the custody producing the NAV, and then even the prosaic things like Actually, being able to trade them and how that works, how that sits within a daily environment, etc. It's great to be able to bring that to the conversation, but equally to hear the stuff coming back the other way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think the. I thought it was a good event on 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 Tuesday. It was Tuesday this week, Um, Darren. The the world has rushed by you so bad. Um, And um, yeah, so if people want to find the research I did on TCFD reports, it is on their website, which I believe is dcif.co.uk. And uh, yeah, if you search for TCFD, I'm sure you can find it. Um, And uh, yeah, for me, I think the DCIF is is two really important things. Uh, One, just this really interesting research house in DC. Um, It commissions interesting stuff, I think. And it is kind of broad spectrum. Um, and then two I think a great network um, so uh, JP Morgan as a venue seems to be the host of choice uh, they do go around uh, we went to Aberdeen for an event last it year did. didn't we um, but the JP Morgan venue on the embankment it's is, is special, <laughs> special yeah it's the old school isn't it it is yeah um, and so uh, yeah they, they probably had 150-200 there on Tuesday yeah, it was a good it, was it, was a, good it was a good turnout a very good um, turnout and then yeah you know it's, DC is such a sort of small community, really. It is. Um, so we sort of all know each other. And yeah. uh, places like the DCIF to get us together and uh, talking to the, an agenda that the, the managers and, and, and
1: Norm Trust are kind of thinking about, it's great. Um, really, really interesting. So I've, I've got a question, yeah. um, which is, Nico, you, you produced a briefing note on. Um, um, investment platforms. <coughs> yeah, yeah um, i Mark. <coughs> you know, you have to forgive me on this because I'm a total non techie Yeah, <laughs> when it comes to investment and uh, uh, wider pension issues and, and, and that. And well, I was reading your briefing note with, with interest because yeah. you seem to see suggest that you know life platforms are, are not the way to go for the large master trust in the future. And I know you were part of their TPP transition from yeah. an IO platform yeah. to yeah. A, a, a custody arrangement. So, so, so Mark, maybe you could just. Tell us a bit about custody arrangements in general, you know, obviously not a sales pitch, we're not here to yeah, say, yeah. you know. Um, but, but from from a layperson's perspective, you know, what can you do with
2: a custody platform that you can't do with an IO platform? A good question. So I think in a nutshell, with a custody platform, it changes the speed, the flexibility, the transparency, mm-hmm. and the control. Right. And those are the things, I hate using that word control for obvious reasons, but those are the things that come back to you in, in greater degree when you're using a custody platform. Mm. And I think it's just a natural evolution of where we've got to in DC. Mm. So DC originally was very much, you've heard the phrase, poor cousin to DB, etc. It yeah. very small. A lot of it was provided on an individual basis. Then we got into the life-based platforms, a lot of which still exist and still do a very good job. But then when AE came in and we launched things like TPP and and Nest and Now Pensions, etc., when they came along, they had a different view of this, and that was driven very much on a custody platform, not a life platform. So, for instance, if you want to put a fund onto a life platform, you've got to go to the life company to get it all fully approved and accepted, and then it goes in. If you're on a straight custody platform, you choose you want to put it on, it takes you two or three days to get it on. Yeah. And it's there as a member option within the week you chose to do it. Yeah. Um, as we're seeing these larger master trusts get much bigger, and they're using funds at the moment, we've seen it with Nest, they're starting to go segregated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Segregated naturally leans itself to a custody so it's, it's,
0: this would be essentially creating an account for the manager to, to, to see visibly the securities that you own, but the, the trust owns the securities themselves. Absolutely.
2: And also managers. Yeah. You can also create a, a multi-manager single pool. So if, yeah. you're having yeah. a, if you're having an active equity or a, a, an equivalent of DGF, you can put, if you want to do a 60-40 portfolio, you can put a bond manager yeah. next to an equity manager in the same portfolio and still have that single one uh, unitized. And I think the next step on from that is it starts to put more flexibility and power back in the hands of the master trust itself. Mm-hmm. So if they yeah. decide that we want a indexed equity portfolio, great. But if they decide they want to do their own ESG overlay on it mm-hmm. or they want to do their own tilts on that, then they can either do that by working with an index provider, choosing what that is, but then that can be implemented on a bespoke basis. Yeah. yeah. If you're back in the old world... You've got to either have someone create a fund for you or go and try and work out a way of tilting off on the fund you're with. Yeah. So yeah. I'll come back to it. It's control, flexibility, um, speed and transparency. And as
1: master trust grow and as assets under management grow, and <coughs> you know, the early days of auto enrollment, master trust competing on price, they were competing on how to make it as easy as possible for employers to make themselves compliant with the auto enrollment yeah. regulations. But we are seeing and, and we're We'll segue on to value for money um, in a second. We're sort of twenty six minutes into the podcast now, so um, okay, we, we'll, you know, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> the um, not quite as good as twenty was it twenty four minutes? Oh, don't yeah. don't, don't. Um, So um, yeah, so, so as as, as yeah, you know, there's a lot there's a lot more scrutiny now on master trusts and their investment approach, and you know, trusts are looking to do more diverse, more interesting things, and. I think what I'm hearing you say is that using a custody platform or morphing towards a custody platform type arrangement gives you more flexibility um, to pick and mix, mix and match, and as you say, put yourself in control of um, your own investment destiny. Yeah,
0: look, I I pick out a few things, uh, mostly just to reinforce what you said, Mark. Um, So, you know, a trust can invest in anything, Mm. um, but a life platform can't. Uh, so, you, you're you kind of taking off the training wheels um, and you're moving out of this, you've kind of got this weird double governance system, if you're a trust, you have to take Section 36 advice from your advisor, that involves you doing due diligence on a, on a manager, that would include some operational understanding, um, and then you throw it over the wall and a, a whole other third party has to repeat that entire process. Yeah, yeah find another slot in a, in a board meeting potentially three months away, get various ticks in boxes before things have to be achieved. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, just kind of removing this additional mouth in the feeding chain. Um, because, of course, the Life Platforms have custody fund accounting transfer agency as well. So you're not, you're just kind of taking the wrap away and actually kind of appointing them yourself. And then, you know, think about the LTAF. The LTAF is a liquidity solution for places where trusts are not managing their own liquidity. They've essentially delegated the fact that they have huge net positive cash flows, possibly out until the 2040s, to an investment platform to manage the liquidity of, uh, who then essentially say, well, because we are forced by retail regulation to be daily traded, daily price, we're going to force that liquidity down another layer into LTAPs. The custody approach essentially announced that, that liquidity management to come all the way to the place that it should be done. So, you know, we can uh, essentially understand that a 25 year olds contribution is going to be stuck in the ground for 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that for me, from an investment case, is really powerful. Um, and you know, what you want is uh, the investment team having as big a universe as possible, because the more options you have, the better decisions you should be making. Um, and uh, at the moment we've got this slightly weird world where the uh, LTAFs, you're the first person I think we've had,
2: Mark, who's called it LTAF um, okay. I think I called it LATF actually, which is <laughs> you know, the Lloyd's American Trust Fund, because <laughs> being on pensions issues, I can get the two of them confused yeah, the right.
0: um, We will have a ready reckoner on LTAFs, LTAFs and all sorts of stuff um, yeah, That's our second poll oh, Yeah, yeah, got um, So um, yeah, I, I, I think the the LTAF is like this slightly odd transitional form until we get enough consolidation and organic growth through contributions and all of those master trusts essentially go, our future is better on a custody world. Um, but I'd also say it does come with, there's additional things that the trust needs to do, right? So And that comes mainly to the transparency and control points. Um, which is you know how do you manage that liquidity how do you make sure now that you are the person who is essentially appointed the pricer that the price is, is correct and you're comfortable with it um, so so in the life company world you've kind of relied on that but then as I understand it I don't think they're really looking under the hood hmm. how do you know here's a question for any trustee on the life platform how do you know that your accrual is correct what, what what evidence are you getting Yeah. Um, so all of those things become open to you as a trust on a, on a custody platform approach, um, and with great responsibility, great power comes great responsibility, right? So that, 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 to that does require this kind of step-up I think in internal governance.
1: Yeah. So Mark, we mm-hmm. ask all our quest- guests the same two questions. One is how you got into pensions, which you've done. Um,
2: yeah. But what does VFM mean to you? So uh, I was pondering this one when you mentioned it to me earlier on. And so my younger son is extremely fashion-conscious, Mm-hmm. And um, I think value for money, and herein lies the problem, is a is a is an individual concept. The trouble is back to the engagement. Mm-hmm. Members are not engaged, so they can't really do it. So we've got to put value for money at the at the, at the trust level, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But if I look at my uh, look at my younger son, he's got a belt. Um, I think it's a Chanel belt, yes. and uh, doesn't actually keep his trousers up half the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I know darn well that belt cost him more, he thinks it looks great, than the, my entire set of clothes I've stood up in today. <laughs> my belt cost a pound from a bargain bucket at the Wield of Kent ploughing match. I think that's value for money for yeah. me. Yeah. He thinks his Chanel belt is value for money for him. I don't know who's right. People uh-huh. instantly recognise him and they look at me and think I'm a tramp. <laughs> Who is right? What the, yeah. So value for money. It's subjective. Yes.
1: Um, Has to
2: and so
0: one of the things that we push back on, I think, in the consultation is the, the desire for, to make this all objective. Mm. Um, so, yeah, how do you balance that as a, as
2: a trustee? So the first little step back, so the first time we went through the value for money, um, I mean, first off, we were marking our own homework. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of, it was so slimmed down, it, it felt like it was going to come up with an almost valueless, valueless yeah. conclusion and particularly we were concerned about the risk-adjusted returns yeah so it just what didn't exist Now it's good to see in the consultation there's a lot more around risk-adjusted returns yeah. um, and it, you know that comes back to that point it's got to be done at the trust level but it's got to be able to produce something at the trust level that the individual member can understand and see that means something to them so from, so from my standpoint, I'd be really interested to see what comes out of the consultation and how yeah. they finally adjust it. But as it's currently conceived, I don't think it's doing the job. Yeah. Um, as it comes out of this, I think it might be doing a better job. But if we're really hoping that members are going to be able to look at this and eventually you know, start evaluating their scheme versus a Master Trust and individual members of the Master Trust and be able to see where they sit, so they're going to get their trust pilot rating it's probably going to have to look like a trust pilot rating.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and dashboards could open the way up to that, so we could be here sooner rather than later, notwithstanding that there is a slight know. delay. Yeah, but I, I still think, so there's, there's, there's three topics I'd love to pick
0: your brains on, Mark. So, so one is, I think we've touched on it, but just that, um, the subjectivity. Um, so but does the risk-adjusted return kind of pick up some of that, because obviously, you know you've decided I don't know what the mix that you've got at um, like for a 25 year old is but it may be more aggressive than other schemes uh, less aggressive than, than than other schemes so does that risk adjusted return kind of over a long enough time horizon pick up those differences
2: yeah it does and also there's another place it's really important about how much risk you're taking It's when you get to the other end yeah yeah, yeah. so if you if you're taking too much risk, still at the other end, you run the risk of fishtailing. Yeah. And someone who is coming to the point of retirement, and you know, depending on what they're intending to do with their pot at that point, if you've got a 15% up, 15% down possibility, mm. that's not good for them at that point. So I think the the risk element of how you're achieving your returns is incredibly important yeah. across the whole spectrum.
0: Yeah. 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 So then the second one is essentially the collective and the individual. Um, Because I do think that so we've talked at length um, (laughs) about uh, the fact that essentially the VFM basis is this inertial default, um, you know, workplace AE kind of basis. So really we're talking about the default and whether it's value for money in comparison to other defaults, Um, but then the world of choice, and uh, you know I as an individual might not want to be in the default uh, is an additional cost that essentially the individuals who you facilitate to make choice then you're essentially charging the, the majority who are not making choices. Do you want to spend more than a pound on a bill? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so if there's natural cross-subsidies within all of our pension systems, but, I mean uh,
2: yeah go on. But, but, but that is again that's, that's someone's choice and now you're straying into a completely different territory because if someone has had the choice and they've made the choices, and they've bought a whole succession of really expensive belts. Mm, yeah. My younger son is going to be mortified when he hears this. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we'll would be delighted to have yeah, you, yeah, it, yes, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. so you have bought a succession of really expensive belts, and then five years into retirement, you've got no money left. Yeah. Mm. Um, whose responsibility is that then? Mm. Mm, mm, mm. So that brings that very moral hazard issue back over the top. Yeah. Uh, which I think is, you know, whilst it sounds nanny state-ish, etc. It's incredibly important. Yeah, and is it about unless you have a PPF for DC? Yeah, and is yeah. it about um,
1: comparability of information? So I, I think you have to treat people who are serial defaulters differently to people who are actively engaging. Yeah, because as soon as you actively engage, you are taking on more personal responsibility, whether you're doing it yourself or whether you're doing it jointly with an advisor. And choice has got to be a good thing because yeah. choice yeah. leads to innovation. It leads to, <coughs> to competition. Um, I, you know, I think retail can work, but retail works where you've got a really engaged consumer yeah. who actually wants the bells and whistles or additional services and additional things um, over and above what a mass market auto-enrolment master trust can offer and should offer. How do you, how do you compare the two? How do, you, how do you have the metrics in place or the framework in place that allows a fair comparison? Because, and, and this, is, this, is, this is really difficult, isn't it? Because yeah. I, for one, think that you know, there's a lots of activity going on in the pensions market at the moment. You know, um, people trying to drive people to move away from a well-governed mass market, auto a moral trust, into a consolidator. Yeah. And that's, I'm not commenting whether that that's a good thing or mm-hmm. a bad thing. People should have that choice. But what I would argue is you need that baseline level of information to be the same um, in a very transparent way, so people understand what they are getting into, and understand
2: what they're getting for their money. Um, how do you deal with that, Mark? I, I think it's nigh on impossible. Yeah. And every time you try and deal with it, you're gonna create another problem. Yeah. Yeah. So this leads you with two extremes. One extreme is, is you go for the full, full-on open market, yep. and you have the relative risk warnings that you do in the investment market, broadly speaking, So long as you qualify, you can buy it, and that will lead to people, you know, 100% emerging markets aged 58, because that's their choice, or the other end of the spectrum is that you have only state-sanctioned default arrangements, the same as you do the other end. Everything in between, you're going to lose and gain something from either side, and it's never going to look right. So I think we've got a really, really difficult way to cut through this, Really? really difficult. And you overlay that with the lack of engagement. Yeah. And you're then in a really worse situation. Yeah. So, so it, but Mark's agreeing with me there. I, oh, no, yeah, 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 I no, know he is, yeah, <laughs> un- un- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Thanks, yeah. Because
0: yeah. 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 so, I, I want so, to throw so, something else no, in. No, so, yes. To, yes. Before you on. do that, right.
1: so is the whole retail versus institutional bank debate a total red herring on this then? And actually, we're never going to get there. So, within the consultation, they say that um, the, the DWP say we'll look to extend this to non-workplace, non-defaults. Yeah. And are you thinking I'm just gonna look at it and think this is far too difficult, gonna to pull up a drawbridge and just leave it on AE defaults? I can't see who wants it. Um
0: you know or, or rather the people who do want it, why they want it. So I think there's a protectionism that comes from workplace which says if we put you retail onto our inertial basis, then as I've said, you will not be value for money. Yeah. And therefore that that at point of transitioning out of that, you know, fiduciary world uh, designed for you by the fiduciary into a world where you design for yourself, you're going to see a comparison which goes like you're an idiot. Mm. Um, and that's not fair, right? It's mm. not appropriate. Um, Likewise, and you can flip that over on his head as well, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but the things that you value as a retail customer are going to be about whether your advisor could access the, 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 you know, whether your model portfolio is on there. Um, whether I as an individual can pick up the uh, uniquely esoteric set of investment trusts that I want to put into, whatever it is um, and they're totally, totally different from I've asked someone to design a default for me um, and I just it, putting them on the same basis for me is madness mm-hmm. um, and making it so complex it's going to be useless mm-hmm. if you did it fairly then it would be useless yeah. that would be my sense and we just need to, as a society, we need to understand there are some complexities which are desirable and irreducible Um, and you know this is one of them for me so your prediction is DWP won't go there they're not I can't see I'd be surprised if there's a clamoring out of this consultation which says um, you know retail should should be kind of fast follower Um, I'd be surprised in that but the ones who are will be the the workplace pensions who have done a poor job of communicating with people Mm. Um, they're very worried that these customers who are poorly communicated with are amenable to uh, advertising at Twickenham Stadium when they go, (laughs) you know, out to the rugby, (laughs) which says, consolidate your pension with us. I was listening to Classic FM the other day, uh, and uh, there's an advert for one of the pensions consolidators there going like, it's so easy for me to take withdrawals from my, right? So, you know, this is really the institutional system failing to engage with their customers at critical points, Mm -hmm. and then kind of calling sour grapes
1: on people who do it better. Would be my sense. Um, yeah. I do think you're right that um, the institutional pension system has done a very poor job of communicating with people and of extolling the virtues in a positive way yeah. about pension saving. Um, you know, I think a lot of organisations just behi- hide behind the fact that you've got strong defaults, a strong power of inertia. It costs a lot of money to engage with people, to communicate with people, so let's not bother. Well, and also I,
0: so I think one of the really positive things for me in the consultation is the the law the, the line that comes from essentially returns uh, and member outcomes to that engagement. Hmm. So it's not engagement like I know that I've got a pension and I'm interested and you know I talk to people over at the dinner table. It's engagement because I've linked that to higher contributions, I've linked that to sent more sensible risk profiling for my retirement, likely journeys, I've consolidated potentially, you know, as a trustee, you can say this is why we're engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we are engaging in that for those outcomes, then of course it's part of our value for money assessment. And you may well want to do all of the other brand stuff um, for, for good reason, but if you can't justify it in that yeah. outcomes piece, then it's not part of it. Well, so, for, for,
2: for me, a lot of this comes back to that fundamental of the level of engagement by the member. Yeah. And uh, if it's okay with you, let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. So, no, please do. We, did, we designed a default, we designed a single default and a higher risk default. We designed those two defaults to produce a pool of money and assets at the chosen retirement point that was neither a drawdown ready nor a annuity ready one. It was to fire straight down the middle. Yeah. And I kind of likened it to taking a penalty against the goal. Yeah. So we neither aimed for the left post nor the right post, just kicked it straight in the middle and got the goalie. Yeah. Um, so we are now looking at designing, moving that slightly on to something different and the reason that we've gone down that route of having one option is because as soon as you say there are two different options at retirement, it changes how people are think about that in terms of particularly 10, maybe 12 years out because the two things start to diverge at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. One is aiming you towards a cash pool, yeah. one is aiming you towards a more two and three but less, less volatile portfolio. Mm-hmm. And the problem is then you come down to think, okay, so we need 100% engagement from members to make a decision around that. And that's what stopped us from doing it because we couldn't guarantee 100% engagement of members to make a conscious decision at that point and an educated conscious decision about which default they wanted to be in because of what they were going to take on retirement. There was some sympathy with them because who knows what, if we've asked them that 12 years ago and they'd have said annuity rates, no, I'm not going near that, I'm Uh I'm a drawdown. Now, with what's happened since and where annuity rates are, they might actually take a different decision. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So, I think the whole thing is, 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 is the whole thing becomes very difficult without that education. Yeah.
1: But it just, does it have to be just in terms of your example there? Does it have to be a, all or nothing though? So, you know, like, do we do, do? you need a situation where someone has to look to guarantee all of their income, so target annuity, um, or just target drawdown? You know, opposite sort of ends of the spectrum. Um, or, or cash. Is well, you have there, to do something, don't you? you? You have to do something, but is there more sort of, you know, how can you, is there a way of keeping your options open a bit more to allow people to make choices later, yeah, without massively affecting returns and massively adding risk onto individuals? Because that seems to me where we need to get to, mm. because getting people to make decisions and, 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 and think about the shape of their retirement income in their late 50s is a big ask.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's why you end up with the, the, yeah. what, you, what you end up with, but, it, it. but, but, it, but, it, but it's like um, it's like a, a, a three person family turns up at the uh, car showroom and there is no car for them, mm-hmm. they've either got a two seater yeah. and the child's got to suffer being on the parcel shelf at the back, or they've got a no four door four seater and they've got one, one door, they're paying for one door and one seat they don't need. <laughs> And it's a bad analogy, I know. But no, no, it's, 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 there is nothing for it. You have to end up with something that's a slight compromise. Yeah. But,
0: this, but this is where, you know, to my mind, the, uh, the, 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 the institutional framework of value for money is so much more valuable than, you know, for the mass market than the kind of retail, because the retail one has to assume that the member is engaged, they make decisions. And like a lump it, I mean, we have to allow people to make bad decisions. That is just society. Um, So getting a trustee board to worry about these things, take advice on these things, look at the data of their membership on these things, you know, maybe you go left, maybe you go right as a trustee board. I think that um, hedging your bets strategy, we used to have that people's pension, I think it's still there. Um, I, as advisor in Towers Watson, um, uh, reacting to freedom and choice, built the model which said... Uh, how do you hedge your bets reasonably accurately? But you're still doing it on an average of a member and not any individual yeah. member. And in any market scenario, there will be winners and losers. What you really want is someone to have the options there that they could engage with um, and a sensible way of engaging them with it. Can I move us on? Because I'm conscious of time and there was another question I wanted Come to ask. Because we're not going to solve any of these problems, are we? But uh, it's great to get your email. So um, forward-looking versus backward-looking in the in the value-for-money assessment. Um, so, uh, you know, to what extent do you think you should look at the forward-looking elements of, you know, uh, let's say institutional quality in your investment decision, but then also, you know, projecting your, your asset allocations out to the future and just giving people a sense of that?
2: Is that part of your process? Do you think it should be? Not at, not, not at the moment. I, I liken, unfortunately, to what a lot of trustees have to deal with around regulation. It's like mm-hmm. playing cricket and, and aspiring to dot balls. right. So Amazing. all you're trying to do is get is get through the piece of regulation mm-hmm. and you get it dealt with. And each time you come back and start making wanting to make sort of more member-related decisions, um, you don't have quite as much time as time as you want for that. I think it's really difficult to do, mm-hmm. and, I can't, and I keep coming back to this: the more of this information we provide to members, <coughs> what are they going to do with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, the health warning sits there on unit on on investment funds future may go up and down, yeah. so it's like the same with this. Yeah, I think the Australian model is quite interesting where the regulator actually looks and says, uh, do you know what, we've done our value for money assessment on you as a super and we've decided you're not, you're not chinning the bar, so we want you to merge with this lot over here. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what the logical end of that is, mm. but um, they've got league tables haven't they. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. On individual asset classes. But not asset allocation, no, overall. asset allocation That was the kind of refinement that Greg told us about. Right, yeah.
1: Um, Do you think we're going to have league tables for institutional workplace
2: pensions? Do you um, think yeah. there's a place for them? I think we might get something around master trusts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and if you assume where TPR wants us to go is uh, down to a small number of very large institutional ma- style master trusts, then I think a league table will be quite appropriate. Mm-hmm.
0: Can I come back to one point just on VFM, and then I suspect we need to close. I can hear the train pulling into Waterloo, uh, and some of our listeners, listeners sat waiting.
2: There are some of your listeners who've had to pause this because they Waterloo Waterloo 20 no, no, minutes they're, ago. They're <laughs> at uh, Cafe Rattata <laughs> just <Yeah>. waiting. To <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the employer
0: role and value for money, and uh, maybe this is thin ice and you won't want to kind of comment, but... You know, obviously, it comes from this sort of auto enrollment duty, uh, these master trusts being authorised. Um, the sense that we need to be able to kind of demonstrate that if you're fulfilling auto enrollment duties, particularly for more than one employer, that you ought to have something in inverted commas objective for those employers and the people helping them select to, to kind of grapple with. Obviously, as a single employer trust, um, you know are you presenting the value for money results to the employer and kind of going we should continue to exist and having that kind of conversation you don't need to to let me into the room but just talk to us a little bit about the
2: process so again you're you're correct it's nice but the answer is not at the moment Uh uh because we don't think the value for money you know as i said at the outset it was still at its nascent level yeah You you were talking about the uptake levels Um, We don't think it's quite there yet. Yes, we do communicate to the employer about what we're up to. Um, We've got a very supportive employer who um, uh, contributes significantly Mm, to a lot of the costs, which needs to be taken into account for value for money, um, uh, particularly. But I can see that it would be part of this down the line, Mm. that um, you would have a conversation with the employer about it. Um, But I think the employers are, are less unless you are failing to chin the bar badly are probably um, are probably the, they've got less of a link to it than they would be on a, on a DB yeah. okay. so when value for money is up and running and uh, I uh, say properly but you know finalised form post this mm-hmm. consultation yes we will be con- having conversations yes. with the corporate about it yeah.
0: yeah great well I think we should probably close our interview
1: there we should we sure. is there anything Thank else, else that we, we haven't covered Mark? Well, just to give you the final say <laughs> um
2: no Honestly, honestly, no. I've learned a lot about fashion. (laughs) Yes, as I say, he will be absolutely mortified.
0: (laughs) Well, look, thank you so much for your time today and your candour. Really, really interesting. Thank you very much. Um, You can find us on all good podcast platforms, uh, so please do follow us there, subscribe to us there. Um, Thank you, Mark, for joining us today. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners for tuning in. I hope you made it through, Henry. Um, and uh, please don't forget you can be in touch with us at vfmpensions at gmail.com if you want to let us know what you think the perfect length of our podcasts should be that would be really good to hear from you but of course give us any other feedback or put yourself forward uh, to be a guest in the future um, oh, I've jumped over events, haven't I? We've we've done a lot of the events we've been talking about in the last few weeks. We have, and uh, um, we're not in the pods today, are we? We're not in the pods. So not we're TV. not in the DG Publishing um, pod. We're, but, are,
1: we're actually in the the Northern Trust pod. We are. Thank you very much for hosting Thank us. It's a problem. Thank you very much for breaking up. <laughs> Thank you very much for the. Yeah, thanks for the bacon sarni. Much appreciated. Yeah. Um, so next week. We'll be posting our VFM consultation response as a mm. podcast, and uh, that's already been submitted to DWP. Yeah, so we hope they we hope you'll you enjoy that, Des. Um, and you know, I think it's going to be quite um, one where they're going to have to work quite hard to make sense <laughs> of our discussion and ramblings. Probably the most entertaining, if not the most useful. Um, consultation response that the DWP would have ever received. Oh, I think
0: very useful. Just hard to perceive what on earth we're talking about. Yeah, no, exactly. So who have we got next then, okay. Uh So we've got Robert Cochran from Scottish Widows. Uh, then we have Jenny Siegel, who is uh, just about to publish her book on hybrid working. Uh, and then we have Donna Walsh from Standard Life. Um, and then I go on holiday, and we've got to work out what we do for the episodes at the beginning of May. But we'll, we'll do, do something.
1: We'll do something, and we'll work something out. So I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, Mark. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Bye bye.